The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. As always, fantastic guests up for you today, folks. We're going to lead things off with Thomas Grove of The Wall Street Journal. He's been covering in-depth the confrontation between Russia and the West. Uh, and obviously, he is based in Warsaw, previously covered Russia for more than a decade. He's traveled to Ukraine regularly since Russia's invasion, uh, writes on Russia's military, the arms trade, and Russian defense sector, as well as great power competition. Thomas, thank you okay. for joining us. Welcome to the program. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thomas, how did you get started in this business? It seems like you, you've done great reporting, starting with Reuters, and now you've just planted your flag out there in Eastern Europe. Was this a career path you wanted, or you just sort of fell into it by doing various stories? It's uh, a really good question. I mean, I, I studied Russian in college, and uh, you know, I was just fascinated by kind of what was the post, you know, kind of referred to more frequently at the time as the kind of the post-Soviet space. So, you know, all of Central Asia, the Caucasus, Russia itself, you know, it was all just wild and, and fascinating. I I couldn't get enough of it coming out of college. Um, so I, I basically, uh, after that, you know, just basically washed up, uh, started with Reuters, and uh, things just kind of had a, took on a life of their own, really. Um, so spent spending 10 years in Russia. Um, you know, we, we left just right before the war, mm. just a few months before, luckily. Um, and I went to, uh, I was going to Israel just to kind of start something completely new, turn a new page. And uh, that lasted about four or five months. And before I knew it, I was back in Ukraine again. Um, I'd, cut it, I'd covered the 2014 war. And, uh, and now it was kind of, I really didn't expect, however, when I went back in 2022, that it I'd be seeing the biggest um, land invasion uh, in Europe since the Second World War. It was um, obviously a surprise. At least it was for me. You've Not been so much for others. You've been to Ukraine a lot in person. Do you feel sort of like you're reliving a World War One video from junior high? I mean, is it? Is it I, I, you know, what, here's one thing you see on our side. You see these. You don't get to see many photos, but you see some about the trenches and the the bloodshed, mm -hmm. and then you see. Mm -hmm. Ukraine, where it doesn't look like anything's going on. And there's some on the conservative side oh, who yeah. say, see, this isn't a big deal. Um, tell us mm -hmm. a little bit what you see on the ground when you go. Well, I mean, that's a really, it's a, that's a great question. I think probably the, the best way of explaining it is 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 explaining the journey, you know, you, you have to take to get there. You know, there's no airports in Ukraine. So anybody who, who makes that trip, they come from most of the time from Poland, Um you know, we're uh, just based to, and, you know, you, you cross the border and, and you're in Western Ukraine and everything feels, you know, you're, you're in Lviv and, and things are bustling, you know, stores are open. It's a, a you know, it's a beautiful city full of, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century buildings. You know, it's just, it's gorgeous. And you think, well, I, you know, it, it is hard to reconcile that with what you know lays ahead. And obviously, you know, the closer you get east, the closer, the further you get south, 
you know, it becomes that, that reality becomes a lot more uh, dramatic, and then the, the scenes are a lot more dire as well. And you know, it, it doesn't take long, you know, until you are in Bakhmut and you see things that you know you simply can't imagine happening in the uh, in Europe in the twenty first century. That would that would seem to me to be a very interesting article for you to work on because I think there is this this disconnection here with the American public. It, in there's definitely not yeah. much understanding of what the real conditions no, no. and I, and, I, and I think it's part of the mm-hmm. problem with the funding. To be honest with you, I think if more Americans mm-hmm. knew what was really mm-hmm. going on in the eastern and south, and there was more pictures because we live in a very social yeah. media picture visual society. I, I think there'd be some difference there because what you see, yeah. especially on conservative media, because, you know, Sam and I always have this conversation with people. Look, both, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine has corruption and Russia's bad. Mm-hmm. They're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't let yeah. a country do yeah. this to another country. And people say that they mm-hmm. sort of, you know, mm-hmm. nod their shoulders and say, yeah, you're right. You know, but I think that type of thing would happen. So let me talk about something's happened this week, um, which has been quite amazing, actually, and you wrote about it on October 4th. Russia withdraws Black Sea Fleet vessels from Crimea base after Ukrainian attacks. And my understanding is in your article is is because Ukraine can't use the drones or the missiles from France or England or even the United States to attack outside of certain areas, especially in the sea, Black Mm -hmm. Sea, that Mm -hmm. the Ukrainians Mm -hmm. have created their own (laughs) missiles. And, um, you know, tell us about that. Well, it's, I mean, what we're seeing is, is kind of the culmination of a, of a few things here. And, you know, on, on one hand, uh, you know, we have to think about the fact that, you know, in, in the first, you know, weeks of the war, much of the Ukrainian Navy was, was destroyed. And so, you know, it didn't have the kind of, it, it was certainly not on an equal footing with Russia beforehand in the Black Sea. I mean, the Black Sea fleet, if we could just take a moment to talk about what this is. I mean, this is kind of a jewel in the crown of Russian naval power, you know, it's, it's kind of it is what, you know, it, it is it is the the, the Russian Empire's power uh, projection, the most important power projection it probably had in in kind of the the, the latter part of the, of, of the Russian Empire. And so it's it's, it's in the Russian narrative and the Russian myth, it's it's an incredibly important fleet. Um, you know, it started under Catherine the Great. You know, if you can imagine kind of what that means for people, and so. Um, it's it's only been, we you know vessels have only been withdrawn from Sevastopol three times as far as we know you know um, since since uh, they started to base there and then twice uh, during the two world wars one in the first world war <clears throat> or just after the first world war and the other the other one right uh, in in 1942 so um, you you have this incredibly important you know symbolically and, and just in, in terms of capabilities as well. Uh, naval power that's there in the Black Sea, which Russia's, you know, has been very proud of. And then you have, you know, the Ukrainian Navy, which, you know, as I mentioned before, was was kind of wiped out. And so what the Ukrainians have done is they've, they've just been improvising, basically. Um, you know, and I think they, they kind of did this very early on. That was kind of, you know, the, one of their first impetuses was to, to really try to, to improvise. They didn't have this, the, 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 the the defense industry that, that Russia had. So they had to basically kind of try to make things that, that would work on the fly, right? And so we, what we've seen is these Neptune, uh, what are anti-ship missiles, but have, you know, and, and was used effectively against the Moskva, 
you know, Russia's uh, flagship last year, we've seen them uh, start launching their own kind of naval drones, these kind of unmanned, uh, you know, surface drones. And so, you know, they, they have some capabilities of their own, but, the, you know, to those, you know, they've added uh, what the British and the French have given them, you know, the, uh, the storm shadow missiles. And so I think it's, it was a very potent kind of mixture that, um, sorry, you hear the train behind no me. I apologize for that. But, yeah, so you had a very potent mixture of, 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 uh, of, of weapons that Ukraine was using against uh, Russia in the Black Sea. And so, you know, it, it made the officers on the ground feel unsafe because they flattened, well, they flattened it, but they, they, they you know, sent, uh, I think, two rockets right through it, uh, the, the Black Sea Fleet Headquarters. And then you saw an attack on a submarine and landing this vessel um, not too long ago as well. And so I think it was it was really a, a calculation um, made by the Russians that this is just it's, it's not worth it right now. You know, they, they weren't really the, the, the Russian ships weren't able to affect the grain uh, corridors along, along the sea as much as they hoped they would be able to. Um, and, and apart from that, I think they realized that if they were to just withdraw a little bit further east, it really wouldn't hurt their capabilities in terms of doing what they were doing before, you know, in terms of sending missiles into Ukrainian cities. Um, it, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. Right. Uh, their, their weapons the have the range from those right, ships, right. regardless of, of if you yeah. move them a little bit. We're with Thomas Grove. Exactly. Thomas Grove, Wall Street Journal um, a reporter. He's based out of... Um, Warsaw, Poland. Uh, we're going to call him the Indiana Jones of, of the Wall Street Journal because he seems to be going all the hot zones here in Eastern Europe. Uh, let me ask you a question. Um, in your article that we talked about, about Russia withdrawing mm-hmm. from the Black Sea, they moved their ships to you know a new port in the Black Sea. And you made a comment that I thought was really interesting. You wrote, while the move may represent only a temporary measure to safeguard against further Ukrainian strikes, the logistical headache of relocating some of Russia's heaviest ships underscores the threat of Ukraine's strike capabilities. Why is that such a logistical headache? And I, and I ask this because I think most people are like, I get on a boat, I turn the key, I leave the dock. Yeah, why, yeah. Is, why, is this, why is this such a logistical <laughs> headache? People do not realize. No, no. So, so, you know, it's like you always heard the old saying, it's like turning the Titanic. Why is it so hard? Why is it such a logistical headache to move them, though? Well, because I think basically, I mean, you're talking with, about, about several kind of docking issues. And, you know, you, you're talking... When it, it, Kind of diverting the, the the fuel and the supplies that you would need, you know, for for these crews to stay on ship, to stay uh, stay on board and maintain the ships. Um, you know, we're we're talking, uh, you know, you're rerouting trains, um, you know, and, and you're trying to figure out exactly when that happens, where they come from, where those supplies are come from, and 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 you know, this this is all. And as we've seen, logistics has been a, has been a, a, a sore spot for the Russians. Yeah, there's a there's the very famous military quote, and I don't know who came up with it, but but said that uh, bad generals talk tactics, good generals talk strategy, and great generals talk logistics. Yeah. Um, huh. Huh. As we're we're coming to the end, we have about a minute and a half left in this segment. We're going to be coming back with more from Thomas Grove, uh, the Wall Street Journal, covering this. One thing I want to get into, Thomas, when we come back is. Is there, or do you see a solution to this that isn't a negotiated solution that costs Ukraine some territory they had before this invasion? 
and the reason I ask that, and, and I apologize for kind of springing a lengthy question on you as we come <laughs> to the end of the segment, but um, the reason I ask that is is you just look at the demographics, and I, you know, there are as many military age males in Russia as there is, you know, total population in Ukraine. That's a mm-hmm. really big mismatch long term in a war of attrition. Uh, mm-hmm. How does Ukraine account for that? Well, I mean, I think if you were to talk to Ukrainians, I mean, they would say that, you know, it's about defending your homeland and, you know, basically trying to fight off somebody who is, is trying to take your, you know, your very house from you, so to speak. So, I mean, I think there's there's no shortage of, of guts, as we've seen on the Ukrainian side. Um, but, I mean, I think, you know, we do have to acknowledge, and I think I think the Ukrainians have acknowledged in, in probably conversations with uh, Western officials that it, it is absolutely necessary to, to kind of maintain the flow of weapons if they're going to continue fighting. Otherwise, it really does become just, just uh, very difficult for the Ukraine. Yeah, there's, there's no way for Ukraine to supply its own armament needs in this war. Uh, we're going to be coming back with more in just a moment. Breaking Battlegrounds, back in just a second. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. All right, welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone, continuing on the line with us in just a minute, Thomas Grove of the Wall Street Journal. But folks, you've been hearing me talk about why refi for a while now. Uh, a lot of people are talking about this investment, so I'm going to just quickly review the basics with you. First off, it's true. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There are absolutely no fees. There is no attack on your principal if you ever need your money back, and you'll get your monthly statement each month, no surprises. If you're not sure if you trust this economy, this secure collateralized portfolio may be a good option for you. Check them out, investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, and then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Uh, Thomas, continuing on, I, I hit you with a big, long question at the end of that. <laughs> Here's 30 seconds. Uh, yeah. 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 Solve the war for us. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. Um, <laughs> but just continuing on in terms of, you know, without Western support, as you as you alluded to at the end, uh, in terms of, of military support, supplies, civilian and military, um, there's really no way for Ukraine to stay in this war. They definitely have, as you, you mentioned, a significant will to war. Uh, which is obviously a big deal. When you're being invaded, you have much higher will to war. That historically has been a big decider in these type of contests. But Russia is still a behemoth with manufacture with a huge population base and a manufacturing base that far exceeds anything Ukraine has. So, continuing on with that, how does Ukraine get out of this eventually? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's it's a really important question, and and I think one that you know everybody is probably thinking about right now. I mean, you, you have, I mean, Russia's economy has basically switched to a war footing. And so, you know, you, you had you had factories in Russia that were, um, you know, producing, say, 100 
train wagon cars a year and maybe two tanks. And now they're producing no wagon cars and nothing but tanks. So obviously, you know, there's a huge, there's a great industrial capacity here. You know, all of Russia, just like much of the Soviet Union, had a kind of dual-use capacity. Everything was they, they, there was a civilian capacity to most factories, and there was a military capacity. And so you could kind of you could switch back and forth between them. Russia's obviously gone all in with the uh, with the military capacity at this, this moment. So obviously that that you know leads has has left a lot of people wondering about what we do going forward. And so I think you know one of the things that's been talked about is a negotiated and to the fighting. And I think whenever we look at that, you know, on both sides, both sides see that as nothing but a pause in fighting. I mean, it's, I think it's ultimately unacceptable for the Ukrainians to have Russians on their territory. And I think it will always be unacceptable for Putin and for Russia to have anything less than all of Ukraine. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think a, a, a negotiated settlement will help stop things, maybe ease the burden for some time. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I think, I think, unfortunately for Ukraine, I think a, a cease in, in, in fighting would probably favor Russia more, but uh, it would just buy time for the next round of fighting, which, you know, could turn out very different from, differently from what we're seeing, you know, last year and this year. What, what a wonderful way to live, rolling my eyes. Um, let's talk briefly here. Right. You, you, you wrote about a really interesting piece. Uh, I mean, when you wrote about this in your article, that Russia is constrained in the Black Sea due to a decision by Turkey last year to implement an international treaty that bans warring states from bringing additional warships through the Turkish Straits, uh, which is a strategic mm-hmm. checkpoint, which means Russia can't bring ships that are based in the Pacific or elsewhere in, right? And exactly. <laughs> it's always amazing how Turkey pops up in all these conversations now. Um, I, I, I mean, I, it is. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. They, they have always been really good at using their geographic yeah, centrality it, it, to European and Asian everything conflicts. Everything you read about Middle East, this Ukraine war, Turkey's in there somewhere, right? That, that's their location. They're always literally central. Yeah. So, yeah, um, exactly. So, t- how has this um, hindered Russia? Well, I mean, so basically what you have to do, I mean, because because Ukraine has been so focused on the Black Sea fleet, I mean, obviously there's a lot of ships that are being, that have been damaged right now. Well, you only have so many shops that can repair those right. various ships that have been hit, you know, and so if you're, if you're backed up, if you're, if you're, if you're backed up, you know, you are go you're, it's like, you know, it's like playing a hockey game and you have three, three players out, right? So it's like, um, you know, quite honestly, if you can't bring more people in, more more guy. Uh, let me think back to the to the war. If, you're, if you can't bring more ships in, you know you're stuck with this huge disadvantage. I mean, you know, Russia has the ships that it needs to continue bombing Ukraine. I mean, let's not forget that. But in terms of you know what it can do operationally in the Black Sea, it's been greatly hindered. And I think part of that has speaks to why uh, Russia has has been not as effective as it would have liked to have been in terms of stopping Ukrainian grain shipments exports out of out of out of Ukraine and through the Black Sea. Thomas, this is a little bit of a tangent, but are navies around the world looking at what's happened to Russia with this asymmetrical warfare and the the hits they've taken on so many of their warships from these drones and and that sort of thing? Are they looking at this and starting to reconsider how they're going to defend their own ships at sea? That's a fantastic question. I mean, I think 
I mean, I mean, I think the, the use of drones here has, has kind of revolutionized the way we think about a lot of things. And, and I think, you know, obviously this isn't the only theater in which we've seen kind of naval drones pop up, but they've, they've, they've been pretty effective. Um, and so I, I think people do have to account for that down the line. I, I, I have to admit I, I'm an expert in, in naval power, um, but I, I would have to imagine that this is, this is something that people who are much more intelligent than I am are thinking about a lot. So Russia pulled out of this grain treaty we had so we can ship Ukrainian grain throughout the world and alleviate poverty and food inflation and so forth. So my understanding um, from reading, and I wish everybody here could just have a map of the Black Sea in front of them. I wish we were doing this on video. So basically, the grain export now is they take, they hug the coast of Ukraine, right? And then they go past Bulgaria and Romania, which are members of NATO. So Russia can't really do anything, right? Exactly. I mean, Russia has played it, has played it a little bit dangerous, and they've gone very close, right? I mean, we have seen strikes on Ukrainian uh, <clears throat> grain terminals that literally are, are, are miles away from Romanian territory, for example, right on the Danube River. So, I mean, they're 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 not, you know, they, they they've made some pretty risky moves, but so far we've seen, you know, whether or not it's because of NATO or whether it's um, you know, for other reasons, they're, they, they, yeah, we, we've seen them, we've seen them back off. But the ships have hugged the coast, and that's exactly what they have to do. Yeah, we have just a, about a minute left here, Thomas. How do people follow you and your work? Obviously, folks, you should be subscribing to the Wall Street Journal if you're not already. I think that's one of a handful of papers that, if you want to be informed, you need to to have in your inbox. Uh, but Thomas, how how can folks follow your work specifically? I mean, I, you know, we, we still use, um, I mean, is it Twitter that X? Uh, I, I, I started I calling it Twix. <laughs> Twix. <laughs> I think that works pretty well. Um, I'm T.G. Grove. T.G. Grove. Perfect. Perfect. Thank Thomas, you. thanks a million, and stay safe out there, and we hope you'll join us again in the near future. Yeah, Chuck, we're going to be coming back here in just a moment, folks. We're going to have a friend of the program, Dan McLaughlin. He is the baseball crank at Baseball Crank coming on. And National Review. And That's National his primary Review. job. Baseball look, Crank's just a hobby. Yeah. National Review. Let's talk about the important <laughs> stuff here, Chuck. We're, we're going to have this guy on. And, Tom, and Thomas Grove was fantastic. Oh, he was phenomenal. Uh, we got to have him back on. And really, people really should look at the Black Sea map today. You'll what, you'll understand a lot more what he's talking about. And Turkey, we got to get, get Flake on. We got to get Ambassador Flake on, talk about Turkey. Back in just a moment. All right, welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Uh, thank you to Thomas Grove of the Wall Street Journal. Fantastic information about Ukraine there. And up next, friend of the program, and it's the right time to have this gentleman on, Dan McLaughlin, senior writer at National Review Online and a fellow at the National Review Institute. He's also on Twitter as at Baseball Crank, which gives you an idea of the most important topic we're going to discuss today, Chuck. Uh, and Dan, where, who's winning these, this next round of playoff series and who's your World Series pick? I mean, you know, I, I think this is one of those years when your presumption has to be, uh, you know, that the favorites are going to win, uh, that we're going to end up with the uh, the Braves and, of all teams, the Orioles. Um, you know, certainly you can't count out, uh, you know, the real veteran teams like the Dodgers and the Astros, but the Dodgers in particular are just awfully banged up. The Dodgers um, pitching is a, is a nightmare right now. Like, they have nobody. Yeah, no, they're 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 a mess. They're a mess. 
Um, and, you know, I mean, you just you don't want to get into October having felt like you've already burned, you know, most of the gas in your tank. I see, Chuck, I, I'm actually calling it for the Orioles. I think that's just a team that's just scrappy, fiery, tough right now. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised. I think it's going to be the Braves or Phillies that win it all. All right. So let's talk a little politics here. So last night and this morning, if you turn on any of the cable news or broadcast news, it's all about Trump, 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 Trump. But, you know, we have Iranian spies infiltrating the White House. We got bond yield soaring, China's economic downturn. We've got Ukraine. People can't buy a home. It's 8% mortgage now. I'm guessing by the end of the year, it could be nine. Um, But we just keep talking Trump. Um, How do we get the press serious about serious things? Um, uh, I, you know, I think they, it, it, uh, I think as long as Trump is there, they're not going to be, uh, and they're going to be caught by surprise by a bunch of things. I mean, the polling, the polling at this point is just comical. If you look at the general election matchups, right? right. Cause on the one hand, you look at like, you know, you look at these polls that are like, oh, you know, Trump versus Biden on the economy. It's like Trump plus 30, right? Trump versus Biden on national security, like Trump plus 25, uh, what's the bottom line of this poll? Biden's ahead of Trump by two, you know, or you get on the other side, you get like voter, you get, you know, you get an electorate where they're like, so 67% say that Trump should be in jail. So what if we ask these people who should win? Oh, it's like, you know, uh, Biden 46, Trump 46, right? So literally people are just, they're looking at the economy and, and everything that this White House is doing. They're looking at Joe Biden and say, anybody but him. And then they look over at Donald Trump and all the drama and, and just everything with Trump, and they're like, just anybody but him. And then you, you ask them to choose between the two, and they're like, oh, man. I, I literally saw this morning, before we started the show, a poll that was done of new registered voters the last six months in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. And they have their Trumps winning by five with these new people who moved into the state and registered to vote. So Trump's winning by five in Georgia. He's losing by five with these people in um, Arizona. Um, He's basically even with them in Nevada. But what was interesting, the next question was, do you support a Republican majority or Democrat majority in Congress? It was like literally 15 to 20 point Republican majority in each of those three states. So people really are. Trump is an enormous drag. People really are making a decision. I think. I mean, I think you're going to see so many split tickets this time, unless something dramatically changes. I I don't think we've seen it before, and it's going to make every political scientist lose his mind. Yeah, and I mean, it is entirely possible that that if it's Trump Biden, you're going to get more money and energy than usual behind third party tickets. I mean, you could easily have three of those tickets, right? Because you got Cornell West, you got. RFK Jr., you got the no-labels people who are talking about maybe running Larry Hogan or Joe Manchin. Um, And, you know, it could end up looking like, uh, I mean, you know, I remember the the Texas governor's race, I think, in 2006 when Rick Perry was running for election. They had a four-way race. They had Kinky Friedman in there. It was like this wild thing. Um, But, you know, uh, of course, our history with four-way presidential races is not good. Right. So... Those have typically ended in, you know, chaos or worse. Yeah, I mean, one one thing, Chuck, is as we're heading into this and everyone's pointing at, you know, RFK, he seems to be pulling more from Republicans and libertarian-leaning folks than he does from Democrats. Seems like it. Is that is that? Yeah, I mean, his 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 he he really has um, succeeded in alienating, I think, the Democratic base. <laughs> 
One hundred percent. Well, it, unless you toe the line one hundred percent, you're going to alienate the Democrat base. I mean, Kirsten Cinema's voted literally like twice in her life outside of outside of the Democrat majority, and and they ready to burn her at the stake for it. Um, folks, we're going to be coming back with more in just a moment from Dan McLaughlin, uh, senior writer at National Review and, and National Review Institute. Uh, he's a fellow there, formerly an attorney practicing securities and commercial litigation in New York, uh, a contributing editor at Red State, columnist at The Federalist and the New, Leg- New uh, Ledger, I can't speak today, and a baseball blogger at BaseballCrank.com. That's what we're saying is the important stuff. And Breaking Battlegrounds will be back with more in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, I can't say enough about investing with Y-Refi. This is a fantastic opportunity. You need to just go and check it out for yourself. Go to their website, investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a ring at 888-YREFI24. Learn how you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market, where you'll know what each monthly statement is going to look like, but no surprises. Again, that's investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24, and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Um, Dan, you recently came out with an article in the National Review um, entitled, What's a Ban, What's Not a Ban? Talking about what progressives call everything a ban now. Could you give us a little overview about it and what do, for example, on books, what do they consider a ban? And we'll go from there. Yeah, I mean, one of the leading sources on book banning, and there's all this alarm, oh, book banning, or there's all this book banning going on, is a group called Pen America, which has, you know, at times in the past been a more reliable kind of just pro-free speech group, but they've clearly taken a very partisan tack on this one. Um and their definition of a book ban extends all the way to, you know, anything that is uh, age-restricted for very young children, that book has been banned. Uh, even if they have a book that was already age-restricted and they say, well, you slightly changed what grade it was, um, you know, it was appropriate for, that's considered a ban. Uh, which is ridiculous, particularly when you consider that, you know, I mean, you've got uh, a lot of the books that there are controversies about. Um, you know, sexually explicit books or books that, you know, or otherwise just you would think that everyone uh, acknowledges that these are books that are inappropriate for very young children, um, you know, and yet somehow this is getting turned into a ban. And my point is that that's, you know, this, this extremely vague and broad definition of ban not only misleads the reader of these reports when they give statistics, it's also inconsistent with how, you know, left-wingers look at what is and isn't the ban in other contexts. Dan, they also want to pretend, I, I, think, I, I think I have two points here, but they also want to pretend that these books are the equivalent of, you know, say, The Catcher in the Rye. But I've been actually getting a bunch of them because uh, this is relevant to a lot of the campaigns here, reading through them myself. 
these are not exactly profound literature for the most part that they're talking about. And quite frankly, I can't read any of them on the air here with you. I mean, right now, with our adult audience, the Federal Communications Commission would throw this program off the air if I read these things. How, how has this discussion gotten so out of hand that saying that that type of book can only be read by a ninth grader and up becomes a ban? Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. And it's, yeah, I, I remember um, Ron DeSantis did a, a press conference on this where he was reading out some of the books that were in, you know, lower grade children's libraries. And literally all the TV stations were like, well, we got to cut out from this because we can't have him say this stuff on the air. Um, it's, it, it's nuts. But it's, you know, part of it is, I think, that simply the hunger for partisan point scoring. Um, but part of it is also that there is kind of an, you know, an ideological faction that genuinely wants to indoctrinate kids in a certain sexual ideology. Uh, and so, you know, they really, really don't like it uh, when these books get taken out of circulation because they want to push this on kids. Which is just weird, right? I mean, let's just call it for what it is. That's weird. The sexualization they're trying to do of kids Sexualization of other people's children. Yeah, it's is weird. Really, really odd. Yeah, no, it it is weird and creepy, and and we shouldn't be afraid to call it weird and creepy. You know what we should do, Dan? We need to fly you out here to Arizona. Then the three of us on a show will start reading. We'll pick fifty of their top books that are banned and start reading. We'll have an FCC, FCC former employee in here and some of the producers of the local TV stations and tell us what we could put on air and what we couldn't. That would be a real interesting show. That frankly. actually would be fun. Just tell us, would would this pass? Could you put this on the 6 o'clock news? Yeah, you know, do it it live so the cops come up and, uh, you know, raid you in the middle of it. I I think we're going to look at doing that. We may get you out here to do that. That'd be fun for us. All right, so Hillary Clinton, being the menace she is, came out and said, (laughs) there needs to be a formal deprogramming of the Trump cult members. Um, Your thoughts? You know, look, I give Donald Trump credit for the one thing that he has genuinely done for— um, you know, the, the, the quality of American politics was to finally put the Clintons out of business. Um, so it is good. It is a good thing that she's just giving these interviews uh, instead of, you know, having uh, being speaking from the, the Oval Office or anything. Um, she's weird and creepy in her own way, um, in a sort of more menacing way. But it's also she's bitter. You know, she's just bitter. Um, and look, you know, are there people who are Trump supporters who are, um, you know, absolutely could use to be to be unplugged a little bit from yes. how they follow Trump? Absolutely. But, you know, when you start talking about it in phrases like, oh, you know, we need formal deprogramming of these people and you've been you know, in the government for years, that's that takes on a much more menacing cast. Oh, very much so. Very, very much so. Um, all right. Let's talk about. Biden did a 180 on the border wall, and it's been fascinating to listen and watch the various Democrats try to explain this. Um, And first of all, what do you think would have happened if Trump said, I'm waiving 26 laws (laughs) to build the wall just unilaterally? What, What would have been the press reaction? Oh, yeah. No, there would have been all sorts of stuff about tyranny. And and, and there was, I mean, at the time when Trump was trying to do various things to get um, you know, a modest, fairly modest amount of the wall built, and, and Biden is is also building only a fairly small section of wall here. Let's not right. Let's not kid ourselves. It's not he's he's just doing what he thinks is the bare minimum. But even but even a hundred yards is a wall. 
I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's doing everything he's complaining about all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if your position is, well, you know, there are better ways to cover the border than a wall, and then you rethink that, well, okay, that's a bit of a change of position, but people reassess the situation. But when you're like, oh, you know, the wall is like a violation of uh, the poem on the Statue of Liberty, and it's this is like, you know, fascist, fascist night falling over the country and everything, maybe, maybe that's a little bit of a problem when you go turn around and have to do it yourself. We're with Dan McLaughlin. He's with the National Review. Dan, speaker's race, what's going to happen? I mean, this has been sort of a complete cluster um, in a very untactful way of seeing it. But what happens with the speaker's race? Yeah, I can think of a number of ways to describe what's going on, none of which uh, <laughs> one could say on air. Um, I mean, it, it, now, well, of course, Trump had to had to wander his way into that. First, he was, of course. He was taking in the accolades of a few people who were like, why don't we draft Trump for speaker? Uh, and then he threw his support behind Jim Jordan, who I think is not really well suited to the job and, and probably not a guy who's going to get the support of the caucus. I mean, we're in a weird position, right? Because if you held a vote just among the caucus, you'd get 210 votes for McCarthy because that's what you just got and eight votes against him. Um, and so it's this it's this weird math where, uh, you know, you, you can't get anybody elected unless you've got everybody on board. Um, you know, I think Steve Scalise is the most naturally unifying figure there. Obviously, there are some concerns about his health. He's being treated for cancer. Um, but. You know, he seems to, to feel that he's up to doing this. Um, and, uh, you know, but but now they're going to they're going to have a TV debate, which is just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so I, it, it's just, just no way to, you know, it's no way to run a circuit. Well, I mean, how this never was going to end well, former Speaker McCarthy. I mean, when you go and say one person who has a bugaboo in his tail about it, it's it's never going to end well. Right. Yeah, I mean, the problem from the start was, I mean, first of all, they have such a small majority that they need to get everybody right. to agree, which gives an enormous amount of power and leverage to anybody who wants to be disagreeable. Uh, and then one of the conditions he agreed to uh, as a condition of being elected speaker uh, was that anybody could bring a vote to the floor at any time to unelect him. Uh, and that just that just gave everybody a veto over him and particularly the people most likely to use it. The, you know, the, and I agree with everything, you know, Chuck, you're, you're getting at there. My one point with this is that the major condition McCarthy agreed to was doing the spending bills individually and in order. And then his leadership, they did not move those forward in a timely fashion. And he quickly blamed them for it, by the way. Yeah, but, but at the end of the day, we didn't hear anything about it. So if that's a failure of communication on McCarthy and the leadership's part, okay. But they need to rectify that. I mean, at some point, the getting back to regular order was a very legitimate thing for that caucus to demand. And it would be hugely beneficial if they do. What kind of commitment are you going to get from the next speaker to follow through with that? I guess that that would be my question. Is it going to get better or is this just a, a totally pointless fight? Well, and, and the problem is, you know, I think McCarthy was making progress in that direction. I don't think he was meeting all of his deadlines. But, um, you know, again, you can't meet all your deadlines without the cooperation of a whole lot of people, some of whom uh, threw sand in the gears because they wanted to stop this. Um 
I mean, you know, I think it's kind of telling that Chip Roy voted to keep McCarthy because uh, Roy was really among the people who were holdouts in January. He was sort of the leader of the people who were very serious about imposing particular process. Right. Um, Gosar and, and Schweikert you know, and here been, in Arizona, same story. Yeah. Yeah, and Roy has been kind of vocal about, you know, obviously he has some things he thought McCarthy should be doing that he wasn't. But, you know, the fact that he voted to keep him suggests that, that you know, he thought that they could still make some progress on, on the budget. Um, presidential race. So Trump has this huge double-digit lead, okay? Who do you see possibly being the two other candidates right now that could have the possibility if something happens of becoming the nominee? That that's name's not Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it seems now pretty clear that, I mean, Ron DeSantis is obviously still in the number two slot. Um, he has held by any realistic measurement, the number two slot all along. Obviously, there's always the question of whether people are going to drop out if they, you know, somebody like DeSantis decides that he doesn't have, the, uh, you know, as many resources as he expected. But, but you know, he's got a lot of money. Um, and I think right now the person who has edged out everybody else for the number three slot is Nikki Haley. Um, you know, I think she has really used the debates uh, and used her focus on New Hampshire to effectively push Mike Pence, Tim Scott, and Chris Christie off to the side. Um, and they're the only other people running who are actually running to win um, in any sense. I mean, you know, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is really there to, to help Trump to try to improve his brand, to maybe get in a, a spot in the Trump administration. It, Vivek's not running to win. Right. Right. It, with Haley in particular, and, and I think this truck is – Chuck and Dan has plagued DeSantis also. We have just about two minutes before we come to the end of the program here. But has she done enough or have any of these people done enough to actually outline a positive future vision for America? It seems like it, it's kind of like set talking, stayed talking points and attacks on Trump and, and not much of a – where's the Reagan? Where's the hopeful positive future? Yeah, and I mean, granted, you know, Reagan Reagan established himself as a tough guy before he got around to reminding people that he was also, you know, a genial and optimistic character. I mean, one of the things DeSantis certainly has done, and I think that he can do more effectively than Haley, is to just say, you know what, I'm going to govern the way I've governed in Florida, look at my record, um, and which is sometimes a good predictor, right? I mean, George W. Bush, for example, on domestic policy, uh, his agenda in Washington was pretty much exactly what he did in Texas. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I'm not, I don't think that DeSantis or Haley has really been ambitious enough in really laying out um, a full view of what their presidential agenda would be. Um, but frankly, I think, you know, I think the voters, I, I think the voters are at the point where they deserve to have a smaller debate stage where they can push the major candidates on that. And they deserve to hear from Trump. Yeah, I, I thought it made a lot of sense for Trump to skip the first debate, but I was bitterly disappointed in him skipping he's this not, one. They he's not joining, he's not joining yeah. any of these debates ever. Dan, thanks a million for joining us again. Dan McLaughlin, senior writer at National Review Online and a fellow at National Review Institute. You can visit him on Twitter at Baseball Crank. And follow his writings. He does great stuff and really suggest you take a look at the piece on 
book banning and just the word banning being used by progressives and conservatives and so forth. Yeah, and make sure you stay tuned, folks. We have a podcast segment coming up. If you like our podcast, if you like our show, make sure you're downloading that podcast. It's available wherever podcasts are available. You can also find us uh, at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. And stay tuned because we've got Kylie's Corner coming up. The irrepressible Kylie Kipper. She found good news. I did. I did. Dan, thanks a million. Have a great weekend. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for a political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. All right, welcome to the podcast segment of Breaking Battlegrounds. We're going to lead off with Kylie's Corner here in just a moment. And then, Chuck, I want to get to something that's happening here in Arizona. You sent me the article. I'd actually already read it this morning. Arizonans are soon going to be drinking their own pee. Yep, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Kylie, pick up your newspaper and read it every morning. You'll learn things. This was not part of Kylie's corner. <laughs> no, drinking your urine is not part no, of Kylie's corner. No, but wasn't. continue. Um, okay, so, well, the first story I want to start with is I was in Seattle this weekend, and last week I had downloaded an app called the Citizens app, which I've had like a couple years before, but I don't think it was like as developed as this is now. But you could pretty much see like all the crime that's going on around you and all the registered <laughs> sex offenders and everything like that. So naturally, well, so first of all, why did you download it? Because someone was telling me how you could see the the sex offenders that are around you because my mom just got a notice in the mail that a sex offender moved into the neighborhood. In, so I wanted in to Arizona see, or Washington in Arizona. Okay. So I wanted to see if there was any that lived in my neighborhood. Oh, so was there? Yep. There's one. <laughs> there's one from a crime in 1990. Um, so I, you know, got to keep my head on a swivel. So I, naturally I opened I, I, it up. You know what? Look, honestly, if you committed a crime in 1990 and you've done nothing since you're probably okay. Well, that's a sex crime i don't know about the other crimes that's true that's true right don't generalize all right go ahead kylie and it was on children which yeah okay not no but good um i'm I'm all for just castration and then we can solve this problem yeah so i open up my app when i'm in seattle and this was i just want to read what was all within less than a mile from me that was occurring and this is at a hotel right yes so i was at a coffee shop technically but it was like right downtown but downtown seattle yeah right next to the baseball and football stadium it says (laughs) person fighting security guard at central library Report of woman wielding a knife. Body found. Report of a man armed with a knife steals items from a shop. And shoplifting suspect threatened to kill employees at the drugstore. You feel like the body found would get a little more detail. Yeah, no, it just says police are responding to a report of a body found. No, you, know, you know what, though? That's So in the age of fentanyl. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. police reporting and responding to bodies found. I can tell you from talking to my cop friends here in Phoenix... It's every day. It's just a body from it's, a drug from a drug. Yeah, there's drug. there's a body every day somewhere. Sex offenders, basically. You'll have to put that screenshot on. Um, yeah, I will. On, on social but I just media. thought that was. I was just. I mean, very one of the things. So, so one of the things actually, I was reading another piece about Seattle, and they were talking about the the significant rise in ODs, and they're right. going to start yeah. having like everybody in the city they want to start carrying Narcan, basically, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and here's the thing. This did not. This was not the case five years ago. These new drugs are totally different, and they're trying to use these death tolls. Whether it's here in Arizona for the heat issues, whether it's in Seattle, they're trying to get, you know, in any lit, lit litany of 
liberal uh, policies out of this. But at the end of the day, I got to tell you, Chuck, I have a lot less sympathy for this issue than I used to in that there's resources, there's help available, there's ways they to get off they, the street and get out of this. But they don't want it. No, they're not. They're choosing this lifestyle, and this lifestyle ends in death. Because, and they don't want to change because they don't want to. No. I mean, they, I mean you know, some, that is going to sound harsh to the audience, but there are people who literally just say, I don't want to. All and, the time. Yeah, and and, I mean, and what, what do you do to force somebody saying, but we don't want you to die? Right. Right. We like you around. But this is where and, – and, and so interestingly, for all the bagging on Trump, one of the things I, I appreciated when he was president was a lot of his policies actually worked. They were kind of common sense. A lot of them worked. If you go and look at his current platform, one of his things on, on this drug addiction is, look, we need ways to put people in treatment against their will. That is common sense. The left will lose their mind over the idea they have when we put it in Kerry Lake's platform here. They have in others. But at the end of the day, that's the only solution here to this problem other than just letting them die. Yep, correct. But a great lead way is we were asking about the sex offender that's in my neighborhood is the uh, it was a child crime. So if you guys follow us on Facebook and Instagram or Twitter, um, you should if you don't. But I posted a poll this week. Because um, I then I talked one morning. Yes. We want to see if people supported capital punishment for kidnapping a child that they don't know. It's not even a relative. Well, but I said so. The question was, do you think kidnapping, abuse, touching a child in any inappropriate way? And I posted this on social media, um, Twitter. I got eighty nine percent say yes, they support the death penalty. Five point six say no, and four point nine said undecided. And then on Facebook. 97% said yes, and 3% said no. And as I was reading, because for the no, there was an option f- to say why. And on Twitter, I got no depends, or no, like I didn't get great explanations. But on Facebook, they still lean in like, no, he should suffer an entire life sentence. Why take him out of his misery? Or <laughs> yes, life without parole. Most people, you know, stuff like that. Why are we taking him out of his misery? Make him stay there. So those were the no's where Twitter was. Yeah, I, I had some people try to explain it to me. I said, okay, explain it. They won it. But I thought those um, numbers were. Well, how many people uh, replied to the poll? A total of 490 pretty between good Facebook for, and yeah, Twitter. It's funny about explaining things on Twitter. Um, I got Sam involved in a little discussion this week because, as you know, my big thing right now is this national debt. I, I think everything, that is that is the hub. Everything else is spoke to the wheel right well, now. Like, for instance, we were talking about Ukraine in the first segment with Thomas Grove and continuing to fund their operations, right? Right. That's tied up in our debt discussion right now. That's tied up. If we did not have the national debt crisis we have, funding Ukraine would be a nothing burger. So, so Sam and I, sometimes I respond to people, and I especially do if they have a Ukraine flag on it. Now, folks know I'm, I'm a conservative who does not think Russia should be in Ukraine, so I'm not going to back away from this belief. But... We talk, I put a comment on somebody saying, we need to focus on the debt, right, the national debt. And so <laughs> this person goes and starts – he says, we need to raise taxes on the rich. And raise taxes, period, primarily on the rich, but want to raise taxes, no, period. No, he was very specific on the rich. He yeah. did not want middle classes. Yeah. We, so, then we, yes. so I asked the follow-up question, <laughs> what would you cut? And they were – 
they were just so minor and so dumb that immediately understood as all these people who I engage with don't understand the crisis at all. Right. So of course, Sam jumped on. Shay jumped on. <laughs> the, and, the guy. So he ran into a more but, intellectual set of Republicans but, than but, he was but, planning. But on. my favorite thing of it was he was going to cut defense as he has a Ukrainian flag right. in his profile. And does he not understand where that money's coming right. from? <laughs> I wanted to cut it in half. So it's like these people, more than half. Yeah, and it's like so. I, I like to ask these questions to see where people are, and the lack of knowledge on the most basic fundamental issues facing our country is horrifying. Oh, it's it's amazing. To, you know, he actually brought up something new or, or that I haven't seen in a while, which was right. We we need to get rid of sugar subsidies. Well, there's no such thing. We we have price supports. Right. So so we set minimum prices and then we tax sugar well, and coming into the and, U.S. And the sugar subsidies are a big deal for liberals because it goes to climate change. Right. So what they want to do is get rid of the sugar down in Florida. So when you talk to the people opposed to sugar harvesting down in Florida, well, do we get sugar? We'll go from Mexico. Well, don't they have the same problems? Well, yeah, but it's in Mexico. They right. literally don't care. No, this is this is a trope. And then he pointed out oil, which, by the way, folks, oil is not subsidized by the federal government. Oh, no, they, he, they, he just wasn't bright. No, you know, but but this is a bigger point when it comes to oil. Like liberals all the time use, oh, there's thirty billion dollars in oil subsidies. You know what subsidies they're pointing to? They're pointing to the same business tax deductions yeah, the tax as credits, everybody the tax else. Credits and, yeah. So like. If I spend a million dollars in improving my business and buying it's equipment, it's a write-off. What's well, a write-off for the oil company too? But there's no difference. And, but somehow they think this is like handing away the cookie jar, and then they think they can tax the rich. The taxing the rich is literally a swimming pool, and they're demanding an ocean. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, he he was a no on my poll as well. He commented. He doesn't follow us, but he's sure. <laughs> We've engaged up. him. He's a follower. Yeah. Hope he's downloaded. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's got us listed somewhere. He does. Um, okay, but I want to talk about this Tupac stuff. Okay. The arrest because he's been I, dead since in the nineties, correct? Nineteen ninety six. Well, maybe. I yeah, maybe. <laughs> so I was two years old, so I never like super got into the Tupac like conspiracies which surprises me oh no i was i was it, i was but exactly it, that but it right is age. a true it's a conspiracy like elvis being alive and living in mexico yeah it is yes yes but they made an arrest last friday mm-hmm. um and th- as they described it in a long-awaited breakthrough in one of the hip-hop's most um enduring mysteries so they arrest keith d and he was a gang leader um but they don't believe he was the actual one that made the shot oh they describe him as he was the ringleader so he ordered the shot and provided the gun he did the planning yes which so i'm gonna go back to the long-awaited arrest breakthrough in 1998 so a year later two years later he does an interview telling a cable channel that he was in the front seat driving the car and he slid the gun into the back seat of which those that's where the shots were fired that killed tupac so he didn't tupac didn't die immediately he died a week later in the hospital but then he goes on and he releases a memoir a couple years ago, 2019, a tell-all memoir, where he, again, admits to these interviews, says he was the one that provided the gun, it was a drive-by shooting, and basically talks about what happens. So if he had it made... So he's been talking about it publicly for a while now. So to me, I'm like, where is this mystery at? Because the dude's been talking about well, but it. But investigators apparently were sitting on it, right? Not, like yeah. letting him incriminate himself yes. further. Yes. So they basically said... Davis's own public comments revived the investigation, and he 
and it proved that it was premeditated. So that's what they were trying to prove. That, that was premeditated. That it was planned. Yeah, because prior to well, Tupac being shot, he had beat up Davis's nephew. But he was shot in a car, right? No, he was leaving a casino. So oh. he, he was, was shot in a car. No, no, he was shot. He was outside the vehicle when he was shot. No, he was in it. No, no, no. I remember that from the time, the photos and all that kind of thing. He was outside the vehicle. So how everyone's describing it right now? He was shot in a car. Is he was in a black BMW being driven by his uh, record producer, and he was also hit with one of the shots but didn't die, and now he's serving fifty years in jail. This is all gang, by the way, like two gangs. Right, right, right. This is a Bloods and Crips rivalry that goes back. So then they say that. The white Cadillac, which had four people in it, Davis being the driver, or at least described as in the front seat, he and then two people in the back seat shot Tupac in a BMW, black BMW. That's all I keep finding. Um, so, but, he, well, but he's claiming now that he made a deal with L.A. PD that he could make these comments publicly, which is why he's been so public about it, and that they couldn't incriminate him because they wanted more information on I it. I think there was a movie on it this past year. It was in 2019. It was, yeah. A major yeah. motion picture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't yeah. independent. Documentary it was like, type thing. Like, but real, it was, like yeah. real actors. Yep. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for all you struggling actors out there, but people who what? make a living acting. But Yeah, but, but so <laughs> that's really, it's kind of one of the really interesting thing, not about the origins of rap, which were not really truly gangster. Yeah. Um, but in the 90s, there was this breed of actual gangster yeah. uh, under Suge Knight and all those folks that really invaded the industry. And that's where this, yeah, but, this all came with. Because as Tupac, I'm reading this, they Biggie. all have the nicknames, right. the rap names right. that I. I've never even heard of that before, but we need, we need to get you a rap name. K Swizzle. <laughs> <laughs> put up on our let's put up on our social media the survey. Is Tupac still alive? And if so, where's he living? All right. All right. All right. So maybe so uh, okay, I guess you saying you remember that he was walking out and it was outside and then now all these reports of them saying he was in a car. I've always like, I've always heard I've always read and heard he was in a car. I mean, I wasn't there so yeah, I don't he know. He was he was going into his car. So they the car was pulled out. They watched him walk out and yeah. and shot him. Cuz this was right after well, he had just we're, beat up. We're going to had Sam assignment for next week for you to find <laughs> the actual documentation was he walking in or out of a car or was he shot in a car while he was driving? Because yeah. I think everybody who somewhat knows about this believes he was shot in a car. It was a drive-by show. So find out But about one that. of the interesting things, so I didn't know that he hung on for a week because they announced, if I remember, they announced at that time that he had died on the scene. Right. Now, that might have been to protect him, right. thinking that an, you know a follow-up hit would come right. through. So he right. could get away and go live in So he Costa could Rica. get away and go live in Antigua. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I want And to, drop 75 new albums. Yeah. This is fantastic. I want to talk to you about this one last subject. So- I, you probably get it too. I, I'm pretty um, stringent when people try to follow me on Twitter. Like you get a lot of these bots. So, for example, if you have below 50 followers, I, I just I block you. I don't want you on. I don't care if you're on my side or not. But I had this person <laughs> try to jump on, Marianne DiMaria. She had 2,700 following, 44 followers. So I go and quickly look at who they are. And I don't mind Democrats. I just don't want insane people. Her first post that I pull up, anthropological literature frequently refers to third gender Native Americans. (laughs) Blocked. (laughs) Blocked. (laughs) Mary Ann's blocked, right? I'm just done with her immediately. But that brings me to a case here. Um, The Free Press had a little um, snippet here that Larry Sanger, the creator of Wikipedia, went on Unheard's podcast to slam the website he made. Sanger talked about how Wikipedia had been taken over by a small group of ideological-aligned 
editors who assert their worldview over each entry. Quote, Eastern medicine is basically called quackery in dismissive, quite judgmental language and so forth. It's done apparently without any compunctions at all. Then when it comes to Christianity, the viewpoint on Christianity given is the liberal one that would be found in mainline denominations and liberal Catholicism as opposed to the actual Bible-believing fundamentalism. And he goes on and on and on. He's right. So, you know, we've talked about—Sam's heard me. There's three pillars conservatives have just blown it on. Public schools, which you can easily take over by winning school boards. That's a that's a two four cycle two three cycle thing. Well, that right? and governors, right? But but, I mean, but school down, but, but still but still yeah. school boards. School boards yeah. are a big deal. I mean, especially like state like Arizona and so forth. Well, you should have the school boards, right? The, the one difference though is the governor can affect the schools of education Correct. in the university. Very, very true. Very true. So. That brings me up. The second one is universities. We have just simply what you have is a lot of conservative donors, small business guys who love it. For example, ASU's got a lot of people who went there who have made money. They're moderate to conservative. And I've seen it because I give a lot of money. I send these committees and they just go and they give money and say, well, I'm going to put my secretary on there or something. And they're, they're not representing their values. And donors have got to get more, you know, that's going to be a harder change, but you could start dictating what your money's well, doing. Well, liberal right? donors do. Right. right. They are very, no, very no, no, specific. They, no, they go do it. Yeah. They make it done. And, and the third one is um, the third one's journalism. Um, so, we, you know, they've gone and have a whole industry of putting these young progressives on papers. And what has to happen is conservatives need to do this. But it's not a, it's not that they just go to like the Daily Caller or National Review. They have to go work at the Arizona Republic, the Provo right. Daily Herald, the, the Colorado Springs. Because that's where your news comes from a lot of times. Right. And people don't get that. And then the fourth thing is this social media online trolling thing like i'm ever going to accept i mean once you start telling me anthropological literature talks about you know the aztecs have a third gender you're smoking crack yeah yeah no you, know, you are in in and conservatives can really get involved i mean i think you can make the quickest change in public schools and more than people realize sam's right about the universities but but those school boards do a lot yeah, school boards do the the two things. I mean, look, school boards can do a lot, but you're you're drinking from a poisoned well on two fronts, because the teachers you're getting from the various t- education right. schools are being trained for to be highly liberal, but also the textbooks. Yeah, no. that's a big textbooks are a big problem. There's basically only three textbook co- companies that provide yeah. the textbooks, and the left made a concerted effort to take them over for their ideology. They've been they've been ago. smart about it. They've been smart about it. One more story. Oh, okay. A feel-good story, so I can end oh, on a happy note. We're getting on a happy note here. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? After listening to last week's episode and the week before, I was like, man, I'm a Debbie Downer sometimes. <laughs> so my feel-good story. After reading this story, I was like, okay, now I have a new item on my bucket list, so I okay. thought I'd share it with you guys. Thank it's you. um So every August and September, it's called puffling season in Iceland. Puffling season. Puffling, yeah. Puff. Okay. So if, if you don't I, know what a, this. If you don't know what a puffin is, it kind of looks like a, um, a penguin. Okay. But basically, they hatch on top of a hill and how they get what how they live their life is once they hatch they like go into this out to sea and then they live there for like two to three years and then they come back and they then they're, they're start safer laying their babies. at sea because yeah. they're flightless but because or, or near flightless uh, yes yeah but because um uh the lights in iceland started confusing them because they would find the ocean by the moonlight but all the lights from the city are confusing them, so they'll fly into the city on accident instead of flying out to sea. So they have puffling control patrol <laughs> where they run around like little families run around. And you're, when you're on puffling patrol, you run around and any puffling you find, you take them to a vet to make sure that they can survive before you just throw them off a cliff. But then you take them to the top of a cliff and you 
throw them off the cliff and then they fly into the sea and you basically save their life. Why aren't we doing this? I know. I, I mean, Kylie and I want a baby elephant. Are we going to get a Puffling now too? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I, I saw, I saw <laughs> a network piece on this that was so fantastic. So they're interviewing and it's like, it's almost all women that are rounding up the Pufflings and Makes tossing sense. them. Well, they count me and in so, there. And so, yeah. So here's the great part though. They interview some guy who does it. You know, they see him doing it and they're like, hey, you're one of the few guys. And he was like, I'm single. Why do you think I'm <laughs> But it's so it's important. Like the guy that takes a dog to the park. Right. It's so important because they only mate with one puffin the entire their entire life. So they're monogamous. And they only lay one egg a year. So like really? if they die or whatever, if they don't make it out to sea and come back, then they are they could and, go and in a danger. huge percentage get eaten out at sea well, anyway. Yeah. I mean would really it's find a... some clips on that on YouTube and let's post it on our social media so we know what Puffling is. Yeah. They're so cute. Westman Islands is the, the most populated one. So I, that's I think where I have to go. Who is who is the natural critter critter that tries to harm them and eat them? Everything that probably eats like meat. yeah, out so anything out in the water. <laughs> That's a tough line. They're not Rap- great at flying. Raptors. You they're know like, what I mean? Like that's a tough line. They're like basically oh, yeah. penguins, so they're not great at flying. Like they got a short. But like you could just throw them like a football, they are said. They, are they as cute as penguins? Oh yeah. they might they might be cuter. They have like these big old colorful beaks. Well, why are we talking about pufflings more? I know. What's going on here? Well, this is a wonderful Kylie Kipper Kylie's corner today to end it. I appreciate it. <laughs> you have a big smile on your face. <laughs> well, I do. Now I know there's a puffling out there. Anyway, folks, thank you. We hope you'll go and share the podcast with your friends and family and coworkers. Um, our episode today was fantastic, especially if you want to learn about Ukraine. Um, I thought the information there was fantastic. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. You can also find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week.